2: Well, it was announced yesterday that five U.S. airports would soon begin doing some level of testing for Ebola on people traveling from the West African regions affected by the disease. Those airports are JFK and Newark Liberty in the New York City area, Chicago's O'Hare, Dulles International in Washington, D.C., and Hartsfield-Jackson in Atlanta. The testing will be taking temperatures of those particular travelers. But with the disease having a 21-day incubation period, as much as 21 days, this testing may not be as reliable as some would hope to look at what this move means. We welcome Wharton Professor Bob Meyer, who is in studio. Also on the phone, Georgetown Law Professor Lawrence Gostin. On the phone, we welcome them both. Great to have you here in the studio, Bob. Lawrence, great to have you as well. Pleasure. Uh, Lawrence, let's start with you. I guess from a, an overall perspective, when I look at it, this seems to be a Band-Aid fix to a larger issue.
1: Well, it certainly is a Band-Aid fix. I think it's a good way to put it. Um, I think... the. President Obama has been under enormous and intense political pressure to do something. And there's, you know, prominent senators have called for travel bans. They've called for mass fever screening of all passengers from from uh, uh, sub-Saharan Africa. Um, so this was the most moderate and measured uh, uh, intervention that that the president could do. Um, it And because it only targets those who have originated in one of the three affected West African countries uh, and uh, have been there within the last 21 days. And for those, they'll be uh, individually tested for fever, and there'll be uh, a a detailed uh, travel and other interview uh, questionnaire that they need to fill out. I mean, that seems to be appropriate, but I think that it will miss a lot of people because People will not be symptomatic, mm-hmm. but more more problematic is it'll have a lot of false positives. That we're entering peak flu season, uh, malaria and tuberculosis, mask, the symptoms of Ebola. And so you'll have a lot of people that, are, that seem to be feverish or, or symptomatic that really don't have Ebola.
2: Bob, I guess from a risk management perspective, this is, I guess, about as much as we can expect right now because of the fact that there is really no cure. There's no medicine out there that obviously has been tested to the point where it can be uh, transported to West Africa and, and be used to handle this situation.
1: No, not right now. But there there are there are at least two promising vaccines okay. in development, and there are a number of antibody and antiviral treatments um, uh, that are uh, that we hope uh, we could get out fairly soon. But no, I can't anticipate. Any relief until uh, 2015, if we're lucky.
0: Yeah, so so that sort of raises the question of, uh, of of whether or not sort of the cost that's involved in doing the screening is sort of worthwhile in terms of the uh, if in fact it has sort of limited limited effectiveness.
1: Well, I think that um, on a cost effectiveness basis, it's probably not going to be um, uh, very cost effective. On the other hand, since it's only five airports and since it's screening only uh the just basically hundreds of people a day that come in from those three affected countries the cost won't be that high although it will divert some cdc uh quarantine staff and state and local health agencies Mm -hmm. Um, but on the other hand um it's going to be uh you know not ineffective but not effective but but at least it gives a lot of political cover to the president. I,
2: I guess, uh, Larry, from the from the perspective of, of the airports, the ones that they picked are probably the best ones when you think of the numbers of people that fly in and out of them each and every day. And I, I would imagine they they looked at the flight patterns uh, of of uh planes that leave that area and maybe eventually end up in the United States they they probably were at mostly those five airports.
1: Yeah, 94% of all travelers to the US from Sierra Leone, Guinea and Liberia um, uh, come through one of those five
2: airports. Right. We're talking with uh, Bob Meyer, who is a Wharton Risk Management Professor and also on the phone with us, Georgetown Law Professor Lawrence Gostin. Uh, Dr. Tom Frieden, uh, who's the director of the CDC, uh, told reporters yesterday that uh, that they're trying to devise travel guidelines. Uh, they're in the works, but they haven't been finalized. Could we get, Larry, to some point where we see... Um, guidelines put into effect where we may not have people allowed to come to the United States from this area, especially if we see a couple more cases here in the next week or two?
1: Well, um, there are some prominent senators that are calling for uh, travel restrictions or travel bans. uh, And for the moment, President Obama's Put that off the table, and I'm really pleased that he has because it would be a disastrous policy yeah. um, what it would do first of all, it would make us riskier because it would exacerbate the epidemic in West Africa and increase the reservoir of infection. Mm-hmm. It would also have a potentially devastating economic commercial trade and humanitarian uh, impact in the region, I think the the fragile health systems would collapse. I think the governments themselves might become failed states. Um, There would be uh, 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 food shortages. Uh, Aid workers couldn't come to and from the region um, freely. Uh, So in this modern globalized world, you really can't put cellophane wrap around three countries and expect to keep a highly pathogenic novel virus uh sealed in it just doesn't work that
2: way the gentleman that uh, thomas eric duncan who, who died of ebola down in dallas the other day uh obviously a lot has been made about the fact that if these uh airport standards were put into place when he came into the united states he would not have been detected either correct
1: No, he wouldn't. Um, He would have been asked for a more detailed uh, history of his travel and also who he's been exposed to. Um, But he was not feverish. He was not uh, symptomatic. And so, no, he wouldn't. I mean, another thing is to remember that during SARS, uh, Canada and Asia used mass fever screening uh, and they screened uh, hundreds of thousands of passengers and they never picked up one confirmed SARS case in a lot of false positives. And with SARS, it's, um, uh, you know, when I was traveling to Beijing at the time, uh, the airline actually gave first-class passengers, I wasn't in first-class, Tylenol um, to avoid the fever screening.
2: Yeah, I I was just going to ask you about that because I had read that story as well. And and I guess it's one of the ways, potentially, that people could get around this. Obviously, that is one. But if you're talking about the fever screening and then a questionnaire— How many people are going to be truly 100% honest in a questionnaire compared to, say, doing a face-to-face one-on-one interview?
1: Well, I mean, it really depends on um, whether they have an intent to evade. I mean, what would you do if if you or, say, your five-year-old daughter um, was exposed to Ebola and you wanted to get to the United States for treatment? um, Would you disclose it?
2: That's an interesting question. Uh, I mean, if you knew that your, your, your person had, uh, your family member had Ebola, yes, I'd want to get, get here to get, get help immediately.
1: You would indeed.
2: Yeah, so you would have to tell them.
1: No, you would have to not tell not them. Not tell them. Because they wouldn't let you in the car. Oh, well, that, from that perspective, yes,
2: correct. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: No, I think you would tr- your instinct would be to try to evade it and, sure. and get to a hospital.
2: Yeah, exactly. Uh, we're talking with uh, Dr. or I should say uh, Georgetown Law Professor Lawrence Gostin on the phone and uh, Warden Professor Bob Meyer here in the studio as well. Going back to the SARS outbreak, you mentioned about uh, how many people were, were basically held, uh, I guess for lack of a better term, in containment uh, for what, upwards of two weeks or about 800 people or so that were held into this, into this uh, kind of location?
1: Um, yes, actually, even more because there were – A lot of quarantines of uh, whole apartment buildings and things in in China and Singapore and places like that.
2: So what could you do? I mean, obviously, we're talking about a very few cases right now, Uh, but but what could you do other than putting somebody in a quarantine for upwards of three weeks to be able to handle this because of the fact that it doesn't reveal itself as immediately as obviously some other diseases do?
1: Well, I mean, the best way of uh, of containing it in any country, particularly in the United States, is you know rapid diagnosis, rapid treatment and isolation, and then contact tracing, and then anybody who's exposed, uh, you uh, carefully monitor them, and then the first sign of fever or or symptoms, uh, you quarantine them. Uh, and uh, but you need to you need to have a plan in place for safe effective, humane quarantine. Mm-hmm. And we saw how that really broke down in Dallas. I mean, it was it was uh, very concerning to see the lack of capacity and preparedness in a large American city.
2: Larry, I know you have to run. I want to thank you for joining us for a few minutes, uh, for giving your insight, uh, and, and all the best to you down the road. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, Georgetown Law Professor Lawrence Gostin. I, Bob, this is uh, obviously... It, It becomes a bigger issue day in and day out as long as there is no cure found in terms of how the United States government, how the health officials in the United States are going to handle this going forward. Yeah, and to, to a large degree, I, I think it's a public relations issue,
0: because uh, if you look at kind of what the actual actuarial risk is associated with it, it's not really all that high. It's sure. not a um, disease which is uh, airborne communicable, like a flu, for example, which kills thousands <coughs> thousands of people each year, and you don't see uh, sort of airport screening for fevers for flu, yeah. yet there is the case here. And I, th- I think one of the the issues is is that, uh, that it's a type of disease, and m- similar. To, to terrorist attacks, where where uh, people have very high degrees of latent fear associated sure. with it, and so the, the it's in some sense it's a PR game. What are things and the actions we can do to lower people's fear? Yeah. Uh, make sure that the government seems to be doing something, even, even though the fear doesn't maybe not have that much of a rational
2: basis in terms right. of what the real risk is. But is there a level of of what is done in reaction to the public's uh, concern that? If you do something, and a lot of people, and like we have brought up on this show, when you're talking about taking temperatures of people for a disease that really can hide itself for upwards of three weeks, most Americans will understand that this is is not a, a perfect fix in any way, shape, or form. And so if you're talking about that level of PR, it will almost backfire. Uh, possibly, but then you kind of look at what, what are the other things they could do. Right? right? Uh, um, that
0: I think that, uh, that that you look at. Um, uh, let's say to take the, the the added money or the added cost that's uh, being used for air for uh, taking temperature screenings at airports, yeah. and let's say, well, let's take that money and use it to invest in um, uh, in basic research to get a cure. Okay. Well, in some sense, that's a that's probably a more effective use of the money, yeah. but it's not one which is going to sort of reassure people because people want a tangible, visible. Sign. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just a very strong analogy between uh, the reactions associated with here and terrorist attacks. We uh, I mean, go back to the underwear bar- bomber, for example. Uh, it was yeah, one individual, right. and all of a sudden, <laughs> that the, the reaction to that <laughs> was to put uh, you know eighteen hundred full body <laughs> skiareers all over the U.S. and uh, the and, shoe it, bomber it, too. The shoe bomber. It was yeah. the same sort of thing, yeah. and uh, you, you can say, well, why? Why this extreme? Overreaction to probably an event which is probably would never occur again. Sure. Because certainly, if you're a smart terrorist, you know not to do it, to do it. <laughs> yeah. You know, you find another way. Well, in some sense, those are actions which uh, are very visible, and uh, and it really helps sort of lower fear associated with it, and it gives you the sense that the the government is actually doing something, um, as opposed to you know working behind
2: the scenes and trust us, we're taking care of it. One eight four four Wharton. One eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. We'd like to hear from you. Do you think the government is doing uh, enough uh, or are there other avenues that they could potentially take or are they in a spot because of the fact that there is no cure right now there are obviously some serums some v- vaccines that are in the works that basically the government's hands are tied one 844 warden one 1-844-942-7866 and I, bob i'm i mean uh, as as a u.s citizen and sitting back and watching this I understand that you know th- they are trying to do what seems to be the the simplest fix for this problem right now, and that there really aren't a lot of options for them to go to right now.
0: Right, it, th- that's <laughs> probably right. And, and as I said, the key thing is what you don't want to have happen is sort of it to, to devolve into uh, uh, wholesale panic, sure. uh, where basically yeah. all of a sudden now people, uh, for example. Uh, uh, what, what, what one of the big concerns would be uh, get, getting on an airplane, and suddenly I kind of suddenly I have to worry that well is the person next to me uh, p- potentially a carrier of the of the disease, sure. uh, and, and these sorts of things. And, and the in and many respects kind sort of the worst thing you could have happen uh, would be all of a sudden people choosing to uh, instead of flying to their relatives for the Thanksgiving holidays, driving, sure. <laughs> because in some sense that's going to be a a, a, a far higher death toll associated with. Putting people on highways than putting them in in
2: in, uh, in in airplanes, but obviously it would be much different if this was, say, a disease that was really born and bred for some respects here in the United States. And, and you know, this is something that is coming from an outside country. As as or as Larry mentioned, you know, ninety four percent of the flights that came uh, that come from Sierra Leone and that portion of the of the world come through those five airports. So it's not like You know, the thousands of airports we have across the United States are going to be affected by this on a daily basis. Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. And, and I should say that that
0: one of the things that uh, that, that lends to the fear that's associated with it, and, and you really kind of have to keep going back to the fact that the, the level of press coverage and the level of concern that's yeah. associated with this it seems to be <clears throat> wildly out of proportion to the actual risk. But yeah. but in many respects, it kind of sparks or it it speaks to kind of an, some fundamental fears that we have had for that have existed for generations, um, um, sort of the notion of the, the uncurable disease. Yeah. That comes from uh, alien countries uh, yeah. uh, and, and th- this sort of thing and that, for which there's a lot of dread associated with it and where there's no control for it. So when you have all those things kind of layer on top of one another, uh, there's this very, very deep level of control of, of fear that's associated with
2: so it. So there is a, 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 a level of management of this whole process from the government's perspective that most Americans do will not be able to get their arms wrapped around Uh, from the, you know, the president talking about we need to send medical personnel and we need to send troops in there to to help build up the infrastructure to the protection uh, at the airports. There are a lot of things, a lot of pieces to this puzzle. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's certainly some things more that can be done. And certainly I, I think that, that, uh, that, that the sooner we can kind of get, make, make progress towards vaccines and so forth, I think that would do an awful lot to help lower the, the concern. But in some sense, uh, at the very beginning of the show, you talked about the, the, the term Band-Aid. And, yeah. and, and, and it very much is a, it's a bit of triage. Uh, what can we do to sort of get the thing under control and try to um, uh, catch it before fear gets out of control? Sure. And, and certainly, you know, there is a very real risk. Associated with the disease itself, and so it's not just purely uh, illusion. Uh, there is a very real risk associated with it, and the government has a real responsibility to uh, to do what it can to control.
2: I guess in some respects, uh, issues of public health uh, end up being a lot like issues that we have with the various parts of the infrastructure here in our country, whether it be you know roadways or bridges or problems with them. We really don't talk about them a lot until something happens. And this is another case where, like, you know, when the bridge in Minnesota uh, collapsed a few years ago and everybody all of a sudden started, well, we need to have massive, you know, work on on our bridges done and check all these bridges. It's the same type of thing. Now there's going to be more of a call where Ebola and other health issues uh, are, are concerned. Right. Th- that's actually a really good point, because I, I think that it this, of course, can kind
0: of cut two different ways. I mean, one of which would be uh, to say that it does call into question and it will cause sort of a wake-up call uh, for making sure that we, we do a better job of doing screening of, of diseases and controlling it. Uh, th- there's also the other concern would be, uh, well, what happens if uh, uh, if basically it turns out that that this is the, the one death, which you unfortunately had, is yeah. the only death we have. Sure. And all of a sudden, uh, we have to go Go through extensive screening and and this sort of thing, and then uh, and it turns out to be nothing. Uh, sure. th- then the kind of the worry is the next time there is a threat, which in fact does turn out to be uh, a, a more severe threat. Uh, people say, "Oh, this is another Ebola uh, crisis." And and I do think a lot of the takeaway that a lot of people had for the SARS uh, outbreak was also one of a great overreaction. And so yeah. one of the, the, the there's also the fear that, that rather than helping it, you know, the the, the, the learning takeaway for a lot of People might be, these are things which you don't have to worry about. The government always overreacts to it.
2: Sure. And, and I guess in some respects, though, even if the government has to take a a, a certain stance and a certain level, uh, and especially when you're talking about something that does have the potential, it may very well not, but but you have to think bigger picture on this when it has the potential to affect more than just a, a, a one-town situation. This you know, could potentially— And I know we talk in those type of terms and and it maybe is going overboard, but it could have the potential to to have an effect in, in five specific regions here in the United States or more. Yeah, absolutely, and, and also I think you also have to think of it from the perspective of what's the, the gains
0: and losses associated with overreacting. For sure. in a wide variety of domains, uh, whether talking about diseases, terrorism, natural hazards, uh, that we always overwarn, we always kind of overprepare, and I, I think the feeling would be that, particularly from the administrative point of view, imagine the Obama administration doesn't do anything, or the head of the Center for Disease Control uh, underreacts, saying, "Well, look, it's just one person; it's not it's you know not airborne, so we don't have to worry." About about it. Sure. And then, if it does begin to actually become serious, then but far and away the, the consequences of that, uh, political consequences, would be just enormous. And mm-hmm. so, there's a lot of downside to, to not doing anything, which, uh, which vastly exceeds upsides of being maybe more, more prudent.
2: There's obviously a, a big difference between what we're seeing here with Ebola and just all kinds of other public health crises. Then compared to, say, 9-11, where you know, we obviously had 3,000 people that were killed, you had all the visuals that were on the TV, uh, and there was that constant uh, threat for several years. There still is even today after 9-11 happened. Uh, yeah, I, I think also the
0: one of the takeaways, actually, at least in my mind, uh, of the re, the uh, government response to the nine eleven in terms of of uh, suddenly you know creating the TSA and so forth mm-hmm. is uh, uh, here. It's an interesting situation that here the TSA has a seven point four billion dollar annual budget and it's never caught a terrorist. And so, but nevertheless, <laughs> but, but people look at that and you know you don't hear people say, well, let's let's uh, uh, you know this is a waste of money. Let's get rid of TSA. Right. And I think that that people basically. feel feel that that's a good use of tax dollars to, to provide that reassurance. And, and I think that w- the lessons here is to say, uh, well, I think that people probably would also want to see that in terms of, if you call it overreaction, or at least being excessively cautious about uh, diseases, particularly one for which there's
2: no uh, currently no known cure for. We, we talked with, uh, and obviously it's, it's a totally different level, but we talked with Howard Cunruther uh, yesterday. And it's ironic that you brought up that specific kind of thought process in that, you know, people with their homeowner's insurance and such, you know, they have homeowner's insurance, especially when they're in the, in the areas where you could have a major natural disaster and they will have it for years and years and years and nothing will happen and they'll give it up. And then that's the time where that will, you know, that will happen at that point. And it's the same type of philosophy. It's just that one time, that it has to happen that make makes people think differently. Right,
0: absolutely, and uh, and and I think that's one of the challenges, of course, in keeping TSA going is, is that, uh, that 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 they they know there's probably a good chance that if there's a real terrorist that you're not going to catch him, uh, you're yeah. not going to catch him through TSA screening. And uh, uh, but but like you said, uh, all you kind of need to have happen is just the system to be you know, lax once and 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 you have events like 9/11.
2: So then I I guess from your perspective, the government has done a fairly good job as much as they can do at this point. In, in terms of trying to handle this situation uh, going forward,
0: right at, at the beginning of the of the segment, uh, Larry indicated that he thought it was his imp- opinion that it was a, a fairly appropriate, measured response, and and I you know and I agree. I, I I think that at this point to do anything more than this, I think would be uh, is a little bit kind of be, going a little bit beyond kind of what's necessary given the uh, uh, given the, the level of threat, and I think it's a bit of a wait and see. Um, uh, um, you know, ideally, what you would like to be able to do is sort of get people before they get on the planes and sure. so forth but it's a very very difficult process and the, if you try to think about what's the next step up from this that you can do right away and uh a, and then you're starting talking about uh, you know s- uh, doing thorough screenings and interviews of of everyone that was ever on a connected flight or might have sat next to someone who was on a connected flight from the, uh, from, the from the source regions and that just seems to be beyond probably what what what, what uh, as much as people want to be reassured yeah. there's probably a little bit
2: too much reassurance so i guess into for if- this whole situation right now in terms of risk management, the most important thing, obviously protecting the airports in, in the U.S. Is, is a part of this, but the most important thing is getting medical personnel, the Army, on the ground in that region to be able to help set up the infrastructure that's needed to be able to— kind of take the next step in this whole process.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the key thing in all risk management is is that there's the uh, controlling the objective risk and making sure you put the resources in place to do it, but also to um, manage the psychological risk. And and yeah. I think that uh, that you really have to, both are equally important, and in a lot of cases the psychological risk is, is greater, because the, the one thing that we don't need, is, as I mentioned before, is uh, people to stop flying, uh, yeah. and people to to alter their days of life in a way which, which produces economic harm, and actual physical harm, which greatly exceeds whatever threat that uh, the Ebola virus would do.
2: Bob, thanks for coming in. Thanks. Great to have you. For
0: more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit
1: knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.